This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So the theme of the talk tonight is refraining from sexual misconduct. Please reflect for a moment on how you relate to this precept, to this theme of refraining from sexual misconduct. When you think about it, what do you feel? Do you feel ease, self-respect, confidence? Or does it trigger any sense of dread or guilt or embarrassment or shame or anxiety or worry or doubt? Practicing with this precept is in part about becoming mindful of of how we are affected by our actions as well as how our actions affect others. The essence of the training, of course, is to not cause harm and to free our mind from that addictive relationship to craving and unrestrained sensual passions. To prevent harm in sexual activity, we practice restraint. We practice wise action. But restraint does not necessarily mean complete abstention from all sexual activity. I mean, certainly, Celibacy is a viable and respectable option. But the Buddha did not expect everyone to become a celibate monastic. As lay people, we can cultivate wise and caring sexual engagements. Personally, I don't really like talking about this subject or this precepts. Um, I mostly don't like talking that much about the details of sexual relations. And partly that's just my personality (laughs) and preferences. And partly I actually believe that it's better if religious leaders, as well as governing institutions, stay out of two arenas. (laughs) And that's our bedrooms and our kitchens. Throughout the world, it seems like religious leaders have sometimes confused views about sexuality and dietary choices with those beliefs that are really central tenets of their faith. And it can lead to shaming and a blind adherence to rules, to various kinds of oppression, violence, torture, even murder. And none of this is freedom. But I don't think we need to pile on more judgment and more shame on the experience of sexuality. Sexuality instead merits our full awareness, our mindfulness, our thoughtful, careful attention. Because without careful attention, without restraint, without wisdom applied to our sexual pursuits, What seems at first to start out as love and joy can quickly spiral into hate. This precept gives us a way to not only prevent harmful actions, 
but it also gives us a way to work with the forces of desire and lust that arise within our own minds. The language of the precept is really quite simple. It basically implies a restraint from, from adultery, and it prohibits coercive, forced, or deceptive actions in relationship to sexuality. It's meant as a protection for both parties involved in the sexual, sexual um, uh, encounter and also a protection for the structure of society. In the Anguttara Nikaya, in the Book of the Tens, we find a description that says, he conducts himself wrongly in matters of sex. So this is a description of, of, of wrong sexuality. He conducts himself wrongly in matters of sex. He has intercourse with those under the protection of father, mother, brother, sister, relatives, or clan, or of their religious community or with those promised to a husband protected by law and even with those betrothed with the garden with the garland so someone basically here is breaking the precept by engaging in sexual relations with someone who is not free to do so who doesn't consent to the act or is under the protection of someone else is the ward of someone else or one is breaking one's own commitments in some way, there is something that is prohibiting the relationship, and yet one disregards that prohibition. Um, ancient Indian culture really did not share the kind of individual freedoms that we cherish in our societies. The essential problems that they saw occurred when the powers that be in the social structure did not consent to the sexual liaison. A more contemporary interpretation of the precepts might mean that one simply takes care to avoid sexual actions that could cause harm, harm to oneself, harm to another, or harm to one's community, one's social network. The Buddha did not specifically speak against homosexuality, polygamy, divorce, or prostitution. He did not elevate heterosexual monogamous marriages up as a sacred bond. The Buddha did not contrast good sexual acts against perverted sexual acts. He lived in a polygamous society in which households could maintain multiple wives and also where slavery and indentured servitude was commonplace. Courtesans were an integral part of society, and caste and clan identity and purity of that of the clan lineage was very strong. Since women in ancient India did not have the economic freedoms that would enable them to live alone very easily, widows would often become the wives of their late husband's brother in order to keep the family structure intact. And we know this occurred with the Buddhist family. His birth mother died about a week after his birth, presumably due to complications due to childbirth. And so he was raised by his aunt, his mother's sister, who was also the wife of his father. 
the monogamous married couple model that we kind of assume is normative from a Judeo-Christian influence was not really a part of early Buddhist society. Sure, there were plenty were plenty of families in which there was there was a monogamous um, uh, married couple kind of an arrangement, um, but that wasn't the only or expected model. There are some discourses that encourage one, though, to simply be satisfied, satisfied with whatever one's spouse or spouses are, content with whatever relationship one has. So basically, we uphold the precept by being clear about our commitments, content with our relationships, and we keep those commitments. We keep those. Um, we we nourish those relationships. If you're in a committed monogamous relationship, then affairs would not be an option, unless you renegotiate the relationship with your partner and change that that agreement. If you have a vow of celibacy for a certain period of time, whether you're practicing as a formal monastic or simply a lay person deciding to take various renunciation practices for periods of time, then during the period of that vow, until the duration expired, one would not be free to engage in sexual conduct. But if you didn't set a duration and you thought, I'll just be celibate for a little while, then the, the, the proper thing to do would be to clearly end the vow of celibacy before engaging in, one sec- in sexual activities. Monasticism is not considered to be a lifetime commitment. One can ordain for some period of time, just as one could take on a renunciation practice or a a simplicity practice for a period of time, and then let that vow expire, so to speak, and engage in sexual activity once again. What's important is the clarity of mind so that we're not breaking our commitments. Sometimes students come to me to speak about issues regarding their relationship concerns. And honestly, I'm not the best person to talk with about that. I'm not sure that I know <laughs> that, I, that I really, that this is my, my, my field of expertise. But I have noticed that sometimes people come to speak because they long to be in a relationship and there's and they're not, so they're looking for a partner. Or they're dissatisfied with the relationship that they have. Maybe there's dissatisfaction with the marriage and they're contemplating filing for divorce. Or they're in a relationship that they actually enjoy and appreciate and value and don't want to give up, but they're tempted to engage and begin to, to, um, to begin an affair with somebody else. And sometimes somebody will have undertaken a period of celibacy and decided, for the next six months, I'm going to practice celibacy. But wouldn't you know it? Somebody who I'm really interested in is now interested in me. What should I do? And sometimes somebody discovers that the partner that they're involved with has, uh, is having an affair with somebody else. So many times when somebody comes to speak with me about these 
the, about an intimate relationship, it's very often because there's discontent or suffering. And this isn't to, to say that all sexual relationships are suffering, um, but often when that topic comes up to approach a spiritual teacher, so often it's because of a breach of of um, a breach of honesty, you know, the the or or deceit or confusion or um, uncontrolled desire, some kind of suffering. Sexuality then is an area that we can bring diligent attention, mindfulness, and active restraint to. We can learn a lot from the monastic guidelines and pick up some tips for how to bring wisdom and restraint to this Um, desire for sexual pleasure or the impulse of sensual desire. And some of the suggestions we might pull from the monastic tradition is to avoid opportunities where we might transgress, (laughs) where we might be tempted. And that's simply by not being alone with a person that you're attracted to. Not being alone with a person, if, 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 if following that attraction, you know, would lead to suffering. If you sense a sexual attraction in a relationship and it's an inappropriate relationship for you, the wise thing to do would be to kind of keep your distance a bit or favor group activities so it's not, so there isn't really an opportunity for that to, to, to develop. To, if you have a meeting, to keep the door ajar, they say, or to not, or what the Buddhists, uh, uh, the, the, the Buddhists describe as not, to not sit on inappropriate seats. And that basically means don't sit on beds. <laughs> don't sit too close. Recognize this attraction and avoid the conditions that would lead you to act on it if you know that acting on it is going to cause harm. So we would avoid that in terms of our physical action, and we would avoid it in terms of our speech. So we wouldn't engage in kind of flattery and flirtation or a kind of kind of courtship behavior, even without physical contact, if we, if we knew that that would cause harm if we were committed in another relationship. So we shouldn't delude ourselves into believing, oh gosh, we're just friends, nothing's going to happen, if we sense that there really is some sexual tension or some flirtation or lust in that relationship, unless we actually want to pursue it. If other people think there's more going on than we want to admit, I think it's wise to take their views seriously because sometimes our friends and family can read the signs more clearly than we can. In the Anguttara Nikaya, Book of the Sevens, there's a discourse that defines celibacy for monks as not merely avoiding coitus. One would also avoid being massaged, joking with women, listening to the sounds of women laughing and singing and speaking, enjoying the sight of a householder couple, remembering past relationships, or hoping for heavenly sexual bliss. As lay people, 
We also avoid engaging in these kinds of actions because they so easily lead either to sexual fantasy or sexual actions that might breach our commitments or lead to harm. At some time or other, many good people, most people, have transgressed this precept. Most people in the course of growing up and really formulating our relationship ethics, we've done something that we wished we hadn't done. (laughs) And in fact, when we keep our eyes open and we reflect or we notice what actually causes harm, sometimes that is a great support for keeping the precept in the future. So we need to be able to forgive ourselves, to learn from our mistakes, and to reflect in what ways in your life have you transgressed this precept. And when you think about a time when you broke this precept, to refrain from sexual misconduct. Consider what were the conditions that permitted that transgression. The simple presence of desire, it can be a huge factor, but it's not enough of a condition to actually lead to the action. That presence of desire has to be supported by other factors in order for you to actually act on it. What other conditions conspired to support the transgression? Was alcohol or drugs involved? What sort of friends were you hanging out with? What were you hoping for? Were you motivated primarily out of greed or jealousy, passion or boredom? Was there a strong sense of identification, wanting to become someone or be recognized or be loved or love? What else were you doing or developing in your life that inclined you towards sexual misconduct? If you were in a committed monogamous relationship and you went outside that for sexual pleasure, why? Why did you stop investing energy in the committed relationship? Were you afraid to end the committed relationship before starting another one? Or did you want both? What was going on there that, um, you know, that you were straying, one could say? Did you genuinely try to communicate? Was there space within your relationship to renegotiate the assumption of monogamy? What was the desire for? Was it physical sex, romance, power, thrill, risk, adventure, excitement, retribution, conformity, belonging, self-assertion, curiosity? Have you ever experienced envy or jealousy when somebody that you were in a relationship with and was expecting their, their 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 total commitment, when they went outside the relationship, how did you react? How did you feel? There might be some times when perhaps someone engaged in a sexual act and it was consensual, but perhaps you didn't initiate it. 
But what did you do to make it possible? And why did you consent to get involved? We can bring mindfulness to all these different dynamics that are occurring that influence us to act based upon desire in a context that we know will lead to harm. We don't need to beat ourselves up because we transgressed this precept in the past, but we can reflect on those occasions. We can learn whatever lesson there is to learn. We can let go of shame and guilt and then commit again to refrain from sexual misconduct in the future. We can also examine our own kind of inner movement, inner longing, inner uh, inclination towards sexuality. And this is not so much about maintaining the precept, which is very much about um, causing sexual harm or refraining from causing causing harm through sexual acts. But there's an interesting discourse in the Anguttara in the Anguttara Nikaya, Book of the Sevens, that describes how it says, when a female delights in her own femininity, feminine manners, and feminine ways, she will then become infatuated with the masculinity and masculine ways of a male and seek sexual union. Similarly, when a male delights in his own masculinity, masculine manner, and masculine ways, he will then become infatuated with the femininity of a woman and seek sexual union. Now, heterosexual bias aside, the teaching suggests that we become, that we can become aware and mindful, not only of how we perceive other people, but also our own bodies, not only how we perceive other genders or sex, uh, sexual sexual sexes, um, but also how we relate to our own. Perhaps first and foremost, we might investigate how we relate to our own sex, our own gender, our own femininity or masculinity, and our own bodies, and to what degree we're bringing attachment, clinging, and identification to to them. This is a deep and complex area for investigation. It's an investigation that might, though, help us to understand how sexual desire forms in the way that we relate to our own sexual identity and our own gender identity. Recognizing our potential for restraint can be very powerful. There may be times when you have refrained from sexual misconduct where you had an opportunity, and it might have been fun, but you knew that down the line it was going to cause a lot of pain. And that's a very powerful moment that we have when we can apply wholesome restraint. Remember the times when you chose virtue over temporary gratification and trust your capacity to do so as needed in the future. For many um, many years, I used to periodically do quite long retreats, and I would um, prepare for the, the retreats if it was a particularly long one or a particularly special one. 
I would prepare by intensifying my practice at home, of course, sitting longer, engaging in, 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 in more practice at home. But I would also commit to celibacy for some period of time that preceded the retreat. And um, there were times in my, um, in my life when I was, it was, you know, maybe three months before a three-month retreat, and I had already entered a kind of commitment to celibacy. And I, I was single, and somebody asked me out on a date. Well, I would usually respond by something like, why don't you call me? I would usually, if I had a three months retreat, it would usually be like three months before I would do the celibacy thing. So, and then a little bit of integration time afterwards. So I might say, why don't you call me in seven or eight months? Or if it was a shorter retreat, it might be, you know, call me in a month and, and, and see. Um, and, it was interesting, and longer retreats would have longer periods of time around them. And it was interesting that eh, uh, I never got any of those dates. Nobody ever called back, you know, six months from now, or some were long. Some were like, okay, well, I'm, I, I have a one-year commitment to celibacy, then a one-year retreat in the six months, two and a half years. Why don't you give me a buzz? <laughs> so, um, so... This um, may not have generated very much in the way of dating life, um, even though some of the people I really liked. Um, but it actually was a source of joy for me to know that I could make a commitment to my practice and stick to it. Especially if we've caused pain in the past through sexual actions, it's important to reflect on the pain and come to the decision to not do it again in the future, and hold that decision with commitment to cultivate the restraint and to develop the confidence that you actually can act differently. You actually can restrain, um, act with restraint. In the Samyutta Nikaya, there's a discourse in the, in the Gamani Samyutta um, where um, there's an acknowledgement that everybody is going to break the precepts at some time or other. Yet we can restore our commitment to the precepts and restore our practice. It says, in many ways, the Blessed One criticizes and censures sexual misconduct. And he says, abstain from sexual misconduct. Now, I have engaged in sexual misconduct to such and such an extent. That wasn't proper. That wasn't good. But though I feel regret over this, that evil deed of mine cannot be undone. Having reflected thus, one abandons sexual misconduct, and one abstains from sexual misconduct in the future. Thus there comes about the, the abandoning of that evil deed. Thus there comes about the transcending of that evil deed. I think this is a very important teaching, that we can recognize the errors that we've made, the harm that it has caused, the fact that it is already done and we can't pretend otherwise and we can't undo it. And so what, we, what can we do? We can learn and we can recommit to bring clarity to our relationships in the future. 
Precept practice should cultivate restraint and wisdom, not guilty remorse, not self-condemnation about all the foolish things we've done in the past. This is an active effort to free the mind from lust, from jealousy, and from envy that drives so many hurtful actions. Undertaking the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct, we become trustworthy, easily satisfied, contented, caring, thoughtful, and considerate of others. There are some traditional practices that can shift our perception away from habitual ways of conceiving of the body as desirable, as beautiful, as sensually seductive. And of course, the classic practice is to contemplate the body as composed of 32 anatomical parts. And while contemplating those 32 anatomical parts, contemplate them as asuba, not beautiful. There's head hairs, there's body hairs, there's nails, teeth, skin. Actually, those first five of the 32 parts are basically what we see in other people. And so we can contemplate head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin in ourselves and also in other people. Is there really anything so beautiful and so attractive about head hair? Now, not the fancy new hairdo that somebody might have, but just head hair, you know, like the kind you find in the shower drain. Not the sparkling teeth that you might see on a toothpaste commercial, but real teeth, you know, the the kind that are oddly shaped, that have rough bits and yellowy parts, that have bacteria growing around the gums. The kind that you see when you've had your tooth pulled out and the dentist gives you the tooth in, in the hand, or where you've you know, like knocked it for some, in some way and it's broken and chipped off. Just bodies, body parts. After contemplating our own body parts, we contemplate the body parts of others. And by meditating on the body, we see simply a collection of neutral parts without habitually judging them as beautiful, as enticing, or its opposite, as ugly, Contemplating the parts should not produce aversion to the body, but it can inhibit the construction of the deluded fantasies that arise when we see shapes and colors of skin and hair and teeth and say, oh, how beautiful, and let that become a basis for lust. So we learned to meet our perceptions with mindfulness. And we investigate the delusion within our own minds that constructs opinions about what is beautiful and what is ugly. We examine our fantasies and discover how we see things sometimes with a quality of attention that is deluded and careless and leads to a distorted perception that causes harm. We notice how we can create the illusion of beauty or ugliness in everything just by our perspective or how we view things. So in keeping the basic precepts, that's going to curb the gross transgressions in our action that could cause social or relational pain. But more important to that in terms of the meditative experience or as important to that in terms of the meditative experience, is to refine our mindfulness 
in relationship to to this movement of desire, this sensual, sensual and sexual desire, this movement of lust. Can we refine our relationship to sensuality, to sexuality, and strengthen our capacity to be mindful, to observe, and when um, appropriate, have restraint. We might apply restraint in many different ways. Some obvious ways might be to not misuse erotic media that exploits or objectifies others. Not exploit to, to not exploit social um, adva- um, advantage, uh, social advantages, or or power uh, power systems. To not ex- uh, not uh, exploit social disadvantages, for example, for sex workers. Uh, prevent to make efforts to prevent sexual harassment in our communities and workplace. To curb the wandering eye and the objectification. Um, of others, to refrain from demeaning jokes that sexualize others, to um, remember that we're not entitled to have our desires satisfied and gratified from anyone, our spouses, our partners, our dates, every sexual action, every single time must be consensual to be, um, to not break the precept. We do not waste time indulging in sexual fantasies, but we cultivate a sensitivity and a clarity, a mindfulness, and a a, a, um, a thoughtful regard in all aspects of sexual relationships. Practicing, we practice to speak respectfully about our partners, to learn to deal with our own sexual feelings, to be mindful of that movement of lust, to observe our actions, and to uh, be aware of our own anatomy and our own um, embodied experience without shame. This precept to refrain from sexual misconduct should not be a way for religious systems and institutions and religious leaders to regulate sexual relationships. But I hope that contemplating this precept will encourage you to bring the greatest sensitivity, compassion, mindfulness, and wisdom into this rather delicate arena of human interaction and use it to strengthen this virtue of restraint.